Welcome, listeners, to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a special treat because we are going to be speaking with an author, Nikki Mitchell. And actually, I'm going to add a parenthesis that was kind of put in touch with her through Nicole James, who, if you remember, is the reader from my End of Ever After audiobook. So when you're done listening to this and you're checking out Nikki Mitchell and her stuff, then you also should go back and listen to Nicole, get the audiobook so you can hear her more and more and more. Okay, that's the plan. Anyways, Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very glad, very excited to have you. And we'll just start talking and through that, we'll tell everybody what you're doing and etc. Nikki's a writer, so Nikki, how you get into writing? Why did you decide, you know what I need in my life? I need to write books. How did this all come about? Well, I was a library aide in high school, and I surrounded myself with books as much as I could. And I remember having a conversation with my high school best friend there, and we said that when we graduated and we went to college, we were going to write books. And then I was told that if you write books, you're not going to make a living, and so that you should probably go to school for something else. And so I did get a degree in English writing, but I focused on the journalism aspect of it because I knew that I could make a living doing that. And I worked for my local newspaper, and then I had kids, and I started telling them stories. My daughter started getting older, and she's like, oh, what are you reading? What are you reading? And it was, all right, you know, I love books. I love that she loves books. And I think it was 2019, my husband had gotten master class for us. He's like, there's some writing ones on there. I'm like, oh, okay. And I saw one that was taught by R.L. Stein. And yeah, I had his complete set as a kid. So it was like, okay, I'm going to take that. And just his excitement for writing for that age and me remembering how excited I was about books in that age. Okay, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm, I'm going to try it. And a couple days later, my character Eleanor, that's in my first trilogy, was born. So that's kind of how I went from wanting to do it to pushing it out of my mindset to getting back there again. Okay, many follow-up questions. First of all, it's funny that you said that, well, I don't say funny, but because writing does not pay so much unless you're one of the really big flashy names or whatever. So you said, oh, I'm going to get something that's actually going to pay. And you did English writing with an emphasis sort of like on journalism. But I've seen before lists of the most useless degrees and journalism (laughs) is usually one of them. So that was an interesting choice that you made, but I'm glad you found a job. Well, what kind of stuff were you doing for, because you say you work for your local paper, are you just covering basic local events, or what were you kind of doing for them? Well, I'm from a tiny town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, although we're on the map now because Olympian Nick Baumgartner just brought a gold medal home, so we're Yay. finally on the map. Yay. Um, <laughs> so I came back and started working for the newspaper that covers my entire county, and it was all small town events, things like that, local meetings, big parades, Whatever they wanted to have me cover, I was covering everything except for sports. Is that considered a full-time job, even though it seems like you're here, there, or whatever? That's a full-time job because you're covering the whole county? It was a full-time job when I first started there. Oh, wow. And then I got pregnant with my daughter, and we ended up moving shortly after, and then we moved back home. They won't let me quit. They kept me on (laughs) as a freelancer. But yeah, I was covering some stuff. Anything from the sled dog races we used to have here to spelling bees. Wow. Well, when you're covering a whole county, I know this is just going to be according to the area that you live in. Are we talking then about the size of like a regular city at that point? Or is it still considered much smaller? Also, I'm not talking about like a, you know, Manhattan. But I mean, are we talking about a nicer sized city at that point? Or is it still going to be much smaller? Just the the space it's covering is larger. Yeah, it's still much, much smaller. We have a couple of cities, I guess you could call them. 
they're cities, but they're still tiny and mostly townships in our county. There's a lot of forest, not a whole lot of people. So are most events... I know this is totally sidetracked. I'm curious. So no, you're fine. Are most events then, they're holding a spelling bee, it's going to be countywide because you need to have that many people or are there tiny towns doing stuff that's not necessarily applicable to the rest of the county? Well, we have two schools in our county. Okay. They're pretty small. So we'll have like the west side of the county will have a spelling bee and then the other one will have a spelling bee and then they'll move on to like regionals and things like that. And then upper peninsula of, would you say the upper peninsula of Michigan? Mm-hmm. Are you near the lake there? Yep, I went to school at Northern Michigan University, which is right next to the lake, Lake Superior. And then we moved an hour and a half home, so we're not by any of the Great Lakes right now, but I was when I went to school. Is that like freezing and beautiful? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Okay, cool. Now we'll go back to the regular writing stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, no, wait, one more thing. What does it mean being a librarian aide? Is that just your excuse to get out of class because you help stock books? What did you actually do? Honestly, I was stuck in the study hall with a teacher that... I didn't like and I needed to get out of her class so I was like oh they need a library aid I'll just go be around books all day that's a good strategy but what about your class like how do they stack it with your classes or just get you at a study hall I just had a study hall and so it was instead of being in that room and doing in the classroom and doing my homework I was in the library and then once my homework was done I just helped stock the shelves if people came out to check out a book I would do that for them because we didn't have the fancy scanners that they have now we still had the cards oh like in the front of it you got to write in those cards yep oh yeah oh good times okay so now back to the writing until the master class happened had you ever thought eventually one day i'll retire as a journalist you know get into writing doing short stories or anything on the side was that a thing that was happening or no you were just focusing on the newspaper i was just focusing on the newspaper i didn't think that my stories were any any good you're just not thinking that your stories were any good, but that wasn't necessarily about your writing, because if you keep writing for your newspaper, you have to be worth something, assumedly. Right. It was mostly the creative writing. It, it scared me. In my journalism stuff, and I did a lot of soft features where I, you know, it wasn't all hard news, but it was still based on what other people were saying, and I was out of the equation. Oh, right. Yes. So there was something terrifying to me about putting what's up in my head down on paper in a creative way. For people to see. Do you look now and think that being a journalist actually helped you a lot with your writing? Now that you did take the leap in more creative writing style, you're like, you know, that was actually good all those years that I, or however long it was that you did that. Yeah, it helped me with finding my voice, the writing style that I enjoyed. I really like doing soft features, like I said, more than covering meetings. Um, yeah. So it helped me with that. It helped me with style and just being in the practice of writing constantly. That's so so I don't I don't regret it. I've done a lot of cool things, met a lot of really cool people, and heard a lot of really cool stories through it. Unofficially, because we can't say this officially, did it also kind of give you ideas that you could tap into now because you were able to see so many different things? A little bit, but I write a lot of fairy tale and magic, and that doesn't sit well in my community. It really doesn't. Oh, really? <laughs> you got all these connections, all these people that you know now, and they don't even like the style that you're writing. I have questions about this plan. Okay, just to ask you, what would you say is more some of the better-selling genres where you're at? Like Northwoods, murder mystery, true crime. Oh, interesting. Um, so the people that live in the UP, we love the UP. We're an entirely different breed. So anything that has to do with the UP, the history of the UP, any crimes that happened up here, anything like that, <laughs> if it's turned into a book, people go crazy. Okay. I guess you haven't yet done the middle grade series in the UP then. Nope, but I did. <laughs> it's set in the UP. Well, 
the part where she's actually in reality is. That still wasn't enough for the people then. <laughs> I don't want it to seem like I don't have support. I do. But people are a little leery of the magic aspect, I guess. That's fair. I mean, growing up, I didn't read a lot of fantasy, and now that's mainly what I'm writing is fantasy. So it's a taste, a style thing. I don't think they're hanging, like, weird stuff outside their house. You know? no. Like, oh, there goes the witch, you know, so. Yeah. Going back to the master class, you saw R.L. Stein. So it was specifically, well, that's actually also because he's writing horror stuff, Goosebumps, is a lot of that kind of stuff, but that's not what you're writing. Was it just because it was a writer that you recognized, or... It was a writer that I recognized and that I grew up reading. So it was like, okay, well, if he can write that many books, amazing books that I loved as a kid, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Just listening to him, you were like, yeah, I can do all that sort of stuff? Or just hearing him kind of calm you to be like, okay, don't be afraid. Let's just see where we go from here. You know, what was the aftermath of that? Well, with the master class, you have the videos and then you have the worksheets that the teacher also puts with them. And so I started doing them and, okay, well, you know what? Maybe I can do this. Maybe it's time for me to do this. There wasn't a thought of doing horror. You always sort of had this, the fantasy sort of idea with you. Yeah, the portal fantasies have always been, I love Alice in Wonderland. Okay, My books yeah. have Alice themes throughout it, Narnia, anything where you can go into a, a magical place and leave reality behind. You have a bunch of books out now. So what are some of them about? Right now I have, I just finished the trilogy, Eleanor Mason's Literary Adventures. She gets a magical fairy tale book from her dad for Christmas. He doesn't know what it is. And when she starts reading the first line, she's transported into the fairy tale as the main character. And so she lands in Nightshade Forest, that's the first book, as a fairy named Pix. And she has to figure out how to get to the happily ever after to make it back home. She befriends Elfie and Milo, these two fairies, and she's got to restore a crystal that's gone missing so that she can end the story and come back home. And then book two is City of Gold. It's a Rumpelstiltskin-type story. Once again, here she lands in a field of golden wheat, and this time her sidekick is a very nervous rabbit named Fennec, and he enlists her help to stop an evil sorcerer named R and his crow from turning the city and everybody into gold. And then book three, Cave of Stories, wraps everything up. Eleanor gets freaked out by her book, so she goes to her librarian, Mrs. O'Leary, who has a really big secret. She's a keeper of magical books. Mrs. O'Leary is not there, and so she stumbles into the stock room where all of the magic books are kept. And her book starts creating chaos, knocking them off the shelves, and she falls into a book called Dewey, The Cave of Stories. And Dewey is a cave where it's the entrance, it's a portal entrance to every story realm ever kept through paintings on the walls. She meets a Viking kid who's also stuck there and his mouse sidekick, and they end up in a frozen tundra with an evil snow queen. And Milo and Elfie and Fennec and Mrs. O'Leary all come back to help her. That's what her series is. Wow. Okay, for the record, I also have a Rumpelstiltskin retelling. A little bit oh, different. I love it. It's actually a lot different. It was part of the End of Ever After series. So I kind of stuck within the original fairy tale. And then I just expanded upon it. But you took it. Oh, so R. Here we go. I got him. He's turning everybody into gold. It's actually kind of like a, a Midas touch thing also. Yep. 
Oh, interesting. Just throwing whatever, you know, little fairy tale elements in. Yeah, well, are you at a point now where, you know, I got so many ideas, I got to write them all, or is it just like, well, let's put the series out here, see how it goes, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, book three was very different. It was supposed to be a four-book series, and it didn't work out, and I ended up deleting all of book three and half of book four. <sighs> oh, my goodness. How did you delete an entire book and started basically from scratch? Because it didn't feel like it fit Eleanor. Oh. Now that you look back at it, you're like, that was a massive pain, but I'm glad I did that. Yes, because I was able to really flesh out Eleanor's character for book three. So I was able to keep part of her personality from it okay. and really get to know her. You know, you're a writer, so you get it. Get to know your characters a little bit better. Yeah. Well, when you first started out and you, you wrote the first book, you did intend from the outset that it was going to be a trilogy or only once you started writing it, you're like, there might be more books in the story, sort of thing. Yep. I went in as it was going to be one book. And then my daughter, she's eight now, is my alpha reader. And so I started reading her my manuscript of draft one. And when I finished it, she goes, well, where's the second one? Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, if she's asking for a second one, then my readers probably will too. What was that experience like that when you're writing for a series, it's not the same as just writing a standalone? Did you sense that no. there's something different? Or can you think now, I really had to pay attention to this, that, or I didn't realize about this, that, or you know anything like that? Once I decided that it was going to be multiple books, I had to go back through and change a few things, especially towards the end, because it couldn't wrap up that way anymore. Oh, right, yeah. Because the wraps aren't different. Yes. Yeah, and then book three was difficult. Wrapping up a series... <laughs> Not my favorite thing because no. of the plot holes. Did you know how you wanted the series to end once you did realize it was going to be a series? You did kind of know what you were going for? Or you're just like, I know it has to end here. We'll see. Maybe we'll see if we get there. At the end of book two, I knew how I wanted book three to end. Oh, okay. Because I fell in love with Fennec, the side character. And I knew that he was going to have to be a big part of three, two. That was the moment of we got to bring him back moment, huh? Yep, but then I also knew that if I didn't bring back Alfie and Milo, that certain readers would come at me with pitchforks. <laughs> so they came back too. <laughs> For the sake of the pitchforks, we had to include them. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you got through most of your book two, or you got through a lot of book two, before book one was actually published. That's how you were able to go back to it. Yep, I did the 10K in a day challenge on Instagram. Why would you do that? <laughs> no, kidding. Because I thought it would be a great idea, but I'm also homeschooling mom and I didn't think things through. <laughs> but I did the 10K in a day challenge and I was able to write. So my books that run about 22,000 words. So you wrote a book in two days? Two so days? I wrote, yeah. Wow. Okay, so once the book was finished, okay, you go back, whatever, your first book is done. You, as far as you're concerned, you're ready now. You're ready for the next step. What was the next step that you took at that point? I found an editor because I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this right. I didn't want to traditionally publish because I, I wanted control over my books 100%. And I knew that that meant that I was going to have to do it. So I found an editor, a kid lit editor, somebody who knew middle grade chapter books. I got in touch with her, and after doing some self-edits with me and listening to feedback from my daughter, I sent it off to her, and I was terrified because that was the first time that anybody in the industry ever read any of my creative writing. After I sent it to her, I focused on getting part of the writing community on Instagram and really trying to focus on making connections. So because you didn't want it to be 
traditionally published. You never even bothered with looking for an agent or anything like that. That was kind of something you decided from the outside, I'm not going there. Yep. And then did you end up self-publishing or you ended up doing like a hybrid publishing? I self-published. I went and created my own LLC. It's called Poison Apple Press and went through it that way. Are you glad that you've done it like that now? Or are you kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'll try it a different way? Or you're just like, nah, this is the way for me. This is completely the way for me. I've had a lot of fun working with my own illustrators and my editor. And there's a big learning curve for self-publishing. And... At first, I was afraid because I had been told, if you self-publish, you can't get your book into bookstores, you can't get your book into libraries, and things like that. And, well, let's just see what happens. I made it my goal to get it into libraries more so than bookstores at first. Because as a kid, I grew up super poor. We didn't have, like, I could get a pencil topper at the Scholastic Book Fair, never books. And so I lived at the libraries, and I wanted to make sure that my books were going to be able to go to kids like me first. Right. And the libraries, how did that work out? Did they take them? Or? There's a lot of people in my direct community that think that if you self-publish, that it's not a... Not a book, yeah. <laughs> not a book. Yeah. <laughs> not a book. And so it was a little bit of a fight, but my book is in our library. Oh, cool. And it's in the library next to us. It's in the library in Marquette, the Peter White Public Library. And that's the library that Mrs. O'Leary's library in my books are based off of. Oh, yay. So they found their home there. That was really, really exciting. And I think it's in the library in Michigan and a couple in Wisconsin. So that was my goal in it at first and then I'll focus on the other stuff later right did you have to go in person to each of these libraries to be like hey I'm an author you know here's my book check it out etc some of them the library next to us my boss at our newspaper actually told her about my books and she ordered them off of Amazon for the library so I guess some of them and then I think a few of them ended up purchasing them because other people were using the inner loan library and they were seeing the book come through. So like, okay, well, we need to get this one on our shelves. That is a big compliment. Yeah. That's flattering. Very cool. So I was like, go back to your editor. Once you sent it off to your editor and every amount of time she got back to you, what was that process like? My editor, her name is Jen Navar. She sends back, you know, all of her corrections and then she sends a video explaining them and the things that she loved and the things that could use work and things like that. And I remember being so nervous and I was checking my email constantly and I remember getting up in the middle of the night. It was like 1am and I saw that it had come through and I snuck down to my office and listened to the video and I cried because of the good things that she said. Oh, wow. And my husband came out, he goes, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> morning, yeah. In tears at my computer at one o'clock in the morning. Good times, yeah, good times. <laughs> so then it was me deciding on whether or not I was going to make the corrections that she suggested or fixing the plot holes or questions right. and then sending it back to her and then her sending it back to me again. It was a really good experience. It wasn't as scary as I expected. Good. And then with an illustrator, you got someone to actually add illustrations to inside of your book? I actually have maps in them. And my uncle had always drawn treasure maps for my cousin and I when we were little. And he does pen and ink, and they're amazing. And I knew that I wanted other kids to get his maps too. So I used my puppy dog eyes, talked him into hand-drawing my maps. The puppy eyes worked? (laughs) Yes. Wow. 
It's just specifically the maps, not other illustrations. Right, for these books. My next book will have a little bit more illustration. Are you going to need more puppy eyes for that? Or that's you're going to go to somewhere else? To... <laughs> no, I met an illustrator through the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Author Association. And so he's going to do like a family tree and things like that in my next book. Did you ever have to refer to your own maps of where are we again? What's next to this sort of thing? Or not really? Not a whole lot. I had notes and sticky notes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that I really referred back to. But they were just simple maps of the kingdom and things like that. Is that also that you use the notes and sticky notes to keep track of what's going on in the series? Because that's one of the tricky things about a series that you got to remember what happened when and you think, oh, of course I remember it. It's my book. But when you're in the next book, you don't necessarily remember what happened before or after. You have blinders on. Exactly. Yeah, I had the sticky notes for that in a notebook. And a lot of times I would have my old Word document open to make sure. It's, because inside the story, when she was in the fairy tale, it didn't really matter because that was like a separate story in its own. But when she was back in Marquette, I needed to make sure that everything was okay. Right. Did you end up working with the same editor on the whole series? Yes, she is the only one that I will let touch my children's book. <laughs> Yay! And yeah. my books are set in 1945. So I used words that weren't invented yet. And yeah. she would mark them. And she's like, Eleanor cannot have a fanny pack. She can have a satchel or a bag, but she cannot have a fanny pack. That's true. My editor did that once with, I have to remember what word it was. I don't know if it was like a baby carriage or a stroller or like a spinning wheel or something. She's like, one second, let's check up when was this invented. And I'm like, I'm not even writing historical fiction. What do you mean when was this invented? But she was very exact in that regard. And that's nice to have, right? Because we're not thinking about that. We're like, well, that's oh, yeah. what I'm picturing. So that's what I'm going to write. You're right. Exactly. And that's what the editor was there for. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Why'd you set it in 1945? Just because that's what came to you. You did want to sort of bring in that slightly historical fiction sort of ness to it. I didn't want there to be a whole lot of technology to remove Eleanor from the love of books. Oh, uh-huh. The easiest way for me to do that was set it in a time where she wouldn't have a cell phone. It could have been 1990 for the same. Right. But I just, I liked the feel of it. I mean, her dad works at a printing company and I liked the library was actually, the library that's still standing there was there in 1945 and it was absolutely gorgeous. It had huge lion statues out front. They're not there anymore? They're not there anymore. It's still a gorgeous library, but they did do some additions. Where is the lion? Where do they go? <laughs> I don't, I don't Where's know. The- Oh, no. How did you see that? You went to like a historical society or the library has photos of its original build in it? The libraries have photos of its original build and things on it online and things like that. The history of it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow. Very, very good. So sneak peek, what kind of story are you working on next? Can you say yet? Yep. My son told me that this series is too girly and it needed dragons. So. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yeah. And he was a little bit jealous because his sister is the silhouette on the cover of my Eleanor books. So it's called A Season of Dragons and it's about a boy. He's a main character. He has ADHD and a little bit OCD because I really wanted that representation. My son has ADHD and I want him to see himself as a hero with no explanation, not, well, I have ADHD because I can read Latin or anything. The main character in the story has ADHD. It's just part of who he is. There's no reason for it except for the fact that that's him. And it's another portal fantasy. There's found family trope. There's dragons. There's a grandma dragon who loses her teeth halfway down the ski hill. Um, (laughs) So he has to help restore the seasons to their right place by getting the dragons to actually work together. Does your son get to be the silhouette on these covers? (laughs) No, I actually found an artist 
on Instagram who's doing my cover, but one of the seasonal dragons in the book was all of its traits and everything, name and everything was my son's. Oh, yay. Well, how do you do your original covers from your first series? How did you get those done? When I first published Nightshade Forest, my brother-in-law painted the Nightshade Forest, and I wow. hired a cover designer on Instagram and she made a gorgeous cover for me and then when I started planning for book two I'm like there is no way to make this look like a series at all with with these covers so when I published book two last year we redid the cover for book one book one has the silhouette of Eleanor the main character holding a book book two has her holding a rabbit and book three has her holding an apple from the frozen orchard that she lands in oh very good that way it actually looks like a series. Yeah, you want that. That's a lot of books you've written since 2019. Yeah, it's been ridiculous. And then I wrote, it comes out in April, a nonfiction, just on Kindle. It is how to write a book with a kid on your lap. And it's just encouraging moms that they can do it if they want to do it. So that was kind of after what you've been through. Make sure everyone can hear this message sort of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. In addition to the libraries, do you do anything else to try to get your book out there marketing-wise? And then it seems like you're active on Instagram, or, or like what else have you got going on? I'm a member of the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association, and we have big events where we do big author signings and conferences and things like that. So I'm active through that, and I do have it in a couple local shops. Oh, nice. Yeah, the pandemic kind of put a, a stopper on some of the things. Yeah, that's true. It will start picking back up again. Well, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. Wrapping up, we always have the wrap-up question of fill in the blank. I really like it when anyone you want to choose. So writers, editors, you guys can do bookstores, librarians, stories, series, covers. Anything book-related, do X, and I really don't like it when they do X. How would you fill in the blank for those? All right, I really like when they put the pronunciations in the back, like a word guide. Oh, yeah. And I really don't like when they just put reviews on the back. You're right. That is annoying. (laughs) I want the synopsis. Good point. Sometimes I'll try to find it if it's like inside by the catalog, like, you know, the publisher's page. And it's not just a one-line sentence. Good point. No one said that one yet. Did you have a a pronunciation guide in your book or you didn't have those kinds of names? I should have. My next one, The Season of Dragons, will. Do you have to sit and once you hear the name in your head and then you have to like slowly sound it out like your child kind of sound out the syllables. Okay, how do I write this down? Is that kind of what you're feeling like when you write those? Yep. Oh, wonderful. Everyone will have it and it'll be good. Well, very good. Nikki, thank you so much. It was fun speaking with you. Yeah, it was fun speaking with you too. I appreciate you having me. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Nikki Mitchell. To find out more about Nikki and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast, and all the great stuff we're up to, please check us out on Instagram at Oh My World Podcast or look us up at eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.